What is happening, my good people? Greetings. What's the latest and greatest? How's life treating you? All is well, I hope. Here as we kick off not only another week, but another Monday. Here to bring you everything that's happening in the world of sports on the latest edition of the J Reels Podcast. This is your host, J Reels. If this is your first time tuning in, welcome aboard. Thank you so much for taking the time out of your day to download and listen to this content. And for those who have been with me on this journey to now episode 80, I welcome you guys back. Here on a Monday, July the 15th, in the year of our Lord, 2019, the Ides of July, as we're just zooming through this summer, please, can we put a time out or just slow down the clock a little bit? We're, what, six weeks away from Labor Day? Ugh. Well, anyway, I put that aside. Let's get right to it. Uh, quite a bit to discuss in various sports. We have the Open Championship, formerly known as the British Open, which kicks off on Thursday, the final golf major of the year. I'll get into a little bit of that, a little preview of what lies ahead. So it's uh, going to take place out in the UK. We'll also touch in on, speaking of the UK, the epic Wimbledon final, especially with a one Novak Djokovic beating Roger Federer in five sets. Uh, just unbelievable, thrilling, entertaining tennis. I didn't get to watch all of it. But at the same time, Novak Djokovic, where does he rank not only with the big three here in this era, but of all time? You'll get my take on that. The NBA had another blockbuster move last week with the Chris Paul uh, to... OKC with Russell Westbrook going to the Houston Rockets and why everybody's enamored with the thought about Russ being reunited with James Harden and why I think this time around it may be a different uh, tone that's going to be set. So you'll get my take on that. But we'll start off with the baseball as we're now past the All-Star break. I know the Met fan could be all giddy about Pete Alonso and what he did not only at the Home Run Derby specifically, but also getting that uh, two-run single the day of the All-Star Game, which the National League, now they just loses every year. Uh, I'll never forget, in the 70s and 80s, when I watched the All-Star Game, the National League can never lose, and now it's the American League's turn to dominate this exhibition game, which they did. They won 4-3, but if you're a Met fan and puffing out your chest about that, at least you have something to root for and something to hang your hat on. Uh, me, I didn't go crazy. In fact, I didn't even watch. I watched a little bit of the Derby, but certainly didn't follow it pitch by pitch or swing by swing. And now that we're past that and the first weekend is in the books, a lot of the attention is going to be turned to the trade deadline, which is 16 days away. And I'm starting off with this theme based on the deadline and what's happened in the last couple of days. Nothing major, nothing of blockbuster, and you're not going to see many blockbuster-type trades. I understand you're going to look at last year and see Manny Machado, which the return... Still, the jury is out. We don't know what that's going to mean for Baltimore down the road, but a lot of people think that Baltimore knew they had to get rid of their superstar. They knew he wasn't going to resign in Baltimore, and they pretty much got a plethora of prospects for a guy who can be a perennial MVP candidate player. Certainly hasn't played out that way in San Diego this year as they've hit the skids a little bit. But as far as opening up this podcast and talking about the deadline, to me it's important because you have a lot of teams that are in the mix here and teams that you don't think that would look for any type of reinforcement, whether you're in Oakland, in Tampa Bay. I know that the NL Central took a little bit of a turn this weekend with the Padres, or excuse me, with the Pirates getting swept, and also the Reds being the Reds. But will they buy or even sell, for that matter? And to me, what had happened over the weekend, already you could start seeing the little shots that were fired, and they were small. Nothing crazy, nothing to really sink your teeth into. But when the Red Sox trade for Andrew Kashner, 
who's been on a million teams, throws hard, but let's face it, he's not a good pitcher. Or the Oakland A's trading with Kansas City for Homer Bailey for a prospect. And although Homer Bailey has been better of late, I believe he was 3-0 and with a 2-4 ADRA in his last five starts. But again, he's not a guy that you're going to jump up and down or go crazy for knowing that Oakland in their situation, they're not going to bring back a high-profile type player. Now, the Red Sox, you would think that this is the beginning of something. They had a rough weekend against the Dodgers, even though they started off their second half with an 8-1 victory on Friday, but they got pounded Saturday and then trailed. They came back late to tie and then lost an extra innings to the Dodgers in a World Series rematch. But the Red Sox, you don't think they're just going to stand pat here and bring in a guy like Andrew Kashner. Now, what do they have left in their coffers as far as players, minor league prospects of that caliber? Not much. Remember, they made a lot of trades over the years, whether it's the Chris Sale trade in particular. They're also probably going to see what they could do to pull a rabbit out of the hat to bring somebody in, which is surprising as to why they didn't sign or re-sign Craig Kimbrell. Now, we know he's in Chicago. He signed that three-year for $43 million deal, but the Red Sox, knowing that their glaring weakness is that pen, and I get that maybe they didn't want to invest $43 million on a guy that, hey, won him a championship, and I understand he did it in tightrope, heartbreaking fashion, or heart-wrenching. I shouldn't say heartbreaking, but heart-wrenching fashion. But knowing that they have a dearth of relief pitchers, and especially on this team where the Red Sox, they know... They have a Chris Sale that, for whatever the reason, I don't want to say he's breaking down because he has pitched this year and he has not been on the DL, but they gave him that five-year, $150 million deal, and this year he's 3-9. and nine. He's had his moments where he's been the old Sale, but you got to wonder, another four and a half years with this type of production, that's certainly not going to cut it. And David Price yesterday, who pitched in and pitched great, I mean, he gave up one run in five, what was it, five and two-thirds innings, but he walked three guys, a lot of pitches. So the Red Sox starting pitching, as we know, it's been up and down, despite the fact that they're, what, nine games over five hundred, And they had named Nathan Ivaldi as their closer. But it's getting those guys to bridge to the end, which is probably going to kill this Red Sox team, not only for the division, you could forget about that, but who knows if they're going to make the wild card. Because right now they're two games behind, I believe, Tampa for the last spot in the wild card race. As a matter of fact, it's Oakland. And a lot of people are going to think that, well, Oakland's going to fold. You could see Oakland at some point. They're going to go through these dog days of August and start to wilt a little bit. Remember, this team won 96 games last year. And I thought they would take a step back this year considering they went as high as they could possibly go with the roster that they have and winning 96 games the way they did last year. And generally with a team like that, it's usually one year on, one year off. And not to say I thought they were going to plummet to 71 wins, but I didn't think they were going to be anywhere close to 90, let alone 96. But going back to the Red Sox, you wonder if there's going to be enough in the minor league tank for them to make any type of deal here for a competent closer. Now, locally here, a lot of the talk is about the Met pitching. In particular, Noah Syndergaard, because he has two years left before he becomes a free agent. And he had a good start there yesterday, or two nights ago, I should say, where he pitched seven innings, struck out nine, gave up two runs, five hits. And there's even reports about maybe even Jacob deGrom. Some rumblings about maybe teams inquiring about him. Now, remember, he signed that long-term deal, but considering you're getting a guy who's an all-star, we understand everything he did last year, 
But teams are desperate to get that final push to not only get him into October, but obviously get to the top of that mountain to win a world championship. Yeah, Yankee scouts checking out Noah's last start. Now, we all know the Mets and Yankees are not going to make a trade. And if they were to, they would have to get a third team involved. And will the Mets help out the Yankees in this regard for them to win a championship? I don't think so. I'd be highly surprised. I mean, the Mets would have to get a surplus of players back. And we all know they're not going to be from the Yankees. They're going to be from another team. Because, of course, if you're Brody Van Wagen, and we know we've, I know I've killed them all spring and summer long. The first person I'm asking is Gleyber Torres. And you know the Yankees are going to hang up the phone. And that's fine. Because you should ask for the sun, moon, and stars. And that's actually going to be the theme here and what I've read in the last 24 hours. That the word throughout baseball is that a lot of these teams are going to pay a hefty price for any of these players. And even if they're a rental. Now, of course, they have to have some sort of reputation or some numbers on the back of their baseball card to prove that. So if the Mets are going to pawn off Jason Vargas somewhere, they're not going to get the sun, moon, and stars from him. We understand that. But obviously, if you're in Washington, which right now, they're in the wild card mix. They have the top spot in the wild card. And ironically, they would play the Phillies in the first round. It would be a home game. Could you imagine the theater for that? Bryce Harper going back there for a one-game playoff where the Nats have never won a playoff series? That would be, whew, that would be thrilling. Just thinking about it, it's theater. But the Nationals, they're not going to trade away Max Scherzer unless they're going to get a boatload back. And even then, I'd be surprised they pulled the trigger because not only do they know they're in the race, but Max Scherzer's their guy. Why be in business if you're just going to sell them off? And they already have a bunch of young players as it is to begin with. And we know who they are. We don't need to run through the whole list. So the GMs that are out there, they're going to look to go ahead, the sellers that is, they're going to go ahead and say, hey, we'll give you this guy, but we want X, Y, Z, and maybe even A and B. And I understand a lot of GMs are not going to balk despite how thirsty or desperate they may be to get in the playoffs or win a championship, but they're going to think long and hard before they part with any of their uh, crown jewels in their organization just for a guy that's going to be there for two months. If it's someone like Syndergaard, he's going to be there for two more years after this year. So you know that the Mets are going to even think about trading him. They're going to ask for more than a pretty penny back. And rightfully so. Despite the fact Syndergaard has not been the same pitcher that he was back in 15 and 16. So the trades, they're going to start to come about here in the days and obviously the next two weeks to come. I'm sure two weeks from today we're going to be talking about it quite a bit. I'm sure a lot of trades are going to consummate at that time. And the rumor mill is going to go through the roof. We all know here locally Madison Bumgarner is going to be a guy that's going to be bandied about quite a bit. If you're a Yankee fan. And as we said last week, the Yankees went two out of three against the Blue Jays. I understand the starting pitching is going to be the focus here, as we've said time and time again, not to be the dead uh, coconut. <laughs> I didn't want to use an animal in this case. I mean, but here we are now with the Yankees six games ahead and a big series coming into town with the Tampa Bay Rays. And the Yankees have handled the Rays this year, no doubt about it. So this is going to be a very interesting time for a Tampa Bay team that came from Baltimore. In fact, they would have been the first team in Major League history to have a combined perfect game, which they almost experienced yesterday. But there was a uh, hit there. Uh, Hanser Alberto, I guess the guy was, 
he got a hit there in the top of the or bottom of the ninth because the game was in Baltimore. But the Rays prevailed, and we're definitely going to see what the Rays are going to be made about here, if they're going to be really in this race or not. And for them to be really in this race, they're going to have to win three out of four. They can't do the split that they did down in Tampa right before the break. What good is that going to be? This series, obviously, is much more bigger for Tampa than it is for the Yankees because even if they lose three out of four, they're not going to get swept. I'd be shocked if the Rays come in here and sweep the Yankees, which will cut it to two games. But if the Rays make up two games here, Good for them. And if you're a Yankee fan, you're not going to sweat. Why? You're going to look at that and say, well, hey, they got the best of us this time around, but not only are there plenty of games to be played, but they know come crunch time, pedal the metal, they're certainly the better team than Tampa any day of the week. And the Yankees right now, as I said, cruise control. One of the things that I didn't mention last week that I discussed on a podcast several weeks ago when we talked about the second half and just getting healthy, and to me, the storyline was not just that, but also what starting pitcher is going to come in here from another team. But the other thing is, is that Aaron Boone, whether the race gets close or not, but you just hope he doesn't overuse his bullpen. Now, the Yankees aren't going to win every game 10-3 to where you could just kind of cakewalk and have rocking chair type games, but you wonder in September. And you got to remember this, Yankee fans, that a lot of the Yankee, from late August to the end of the year, a lot of the games are on the road. And some of those include going on the West Coast, going to Seattle, Oakland. They've already been to Anaheim. It's one of those things. And they also go to L.A. in late August. So it's not out of the realm of possibility that if a lot of these games are close, and especially going up against teams that are fighting for a wild card or a division, whatever it may be, that he may be in that bullpen a little earlier than usual or having to extend guys on more than one day. And we all know Aaron Boone, we certainly haven't seen him in that moment. Granted, it's been a year and a half, and we certainly haven't seen it this year, but we haven't seen him work a bullpen the way Joe Girardi did. We haven't seen any of his, I want to say expertise. Let's not get crazy. But we really want to see Aaron Boone operate in that pressure situation. Obviously, last year we saw how that went. But it's a new year this year, and he's been phenomenal this year. But now we want to make sure as we get deeper into the season, especially into October, how is he going to manage his bullpen? And we understand he has a lot of weapons out there. But my thing is, how often is he going to use his bullpen? And again, it dictates on the games and the lead, et cetera. But that's just something to keep in mind that you hope that he doesn't burn out his bullpen from now until the end of September. Because we know what that may mean come October and if you're the Mets right now whoop de do you win two out of three in Miami you lose the first game badly with Vargas and I would think he's going to be gone but he's probably going to be gone for a bag of baseballs people they go to Minnesota for two after an off day today and then they go to San Francisco for four the only thing I can say about the Mets right now Anything you get out of a Robinson Cano from here on out is a bonus because we know the first half that he had has just been an abomination. So him hitting back-to-back home runs here, hopefully he could get a stroke back. Hopefully he could hit a respectable 280 or get close to that or anywhere between 280 and 310 this year, which hopefully would bode well going into next year. I don't know if it's the pressure of New York. And people can say, what are you talking about, J. Reels? Pressure of New York, he's, been, he's played here. But remember, he's 36 years old. 
I'm sure a lot was expected of him to come here and kind of, I don't want to say be the savior, but to be that guy, the leader of this team, one who a lot of his teammates and a lot of the younger guys on his team are going to look up to. And I understand he had to fight the hand injuries early on when he was coming out of that slump and then the quad and who knows where his mindset has been. But maybe the break had done him some good. I understand it's the Marlins can't get crazy. But still, you just hope that he's going to start hitting the way Robinson Cano has hit throughout his career. Not to say he's going to hit 330, but if he ends up anywhere between 280 and 300, as good as he possibly can be, and then on top of that, hopefully carry that on to next year, then that's all you could hope for. And as far as the rumors are concerned with the Mets, if Syndergaard were to go in in the package, hey, listen, this is not going to happen, but if you're bringing back Fernando Tatis, then you'd have to do it. I can't see why he wouldn't, but of course, you know, the Padres aren't going to give up Tatis because the Padres are one of the teams that are hot for him. The Astros are as well. I believe the, I don't think the Indians, I don't know why I was thinking the Indians off the top of my head. And of course, the Yankees are looking at him, but again, I'm sure they're probably looking to broker a three-team, tra- a three-team trade if that could possibly happen, which I don't think it will. As far as the Grom's concerned, I mean, why would you trade the Grom if you just signed him? To me, that wouldn't make any sense. And I would say this, in the right deal, once again, in the right deal for Syndergaard, I'd, absolutely. And I understand that last week I came out and said, Zach Wheeler, I want him out. And then people were barking at me saying that, but wait a minute, you don't have much starting pitching after the Grom and Syndergaard as it is. Steven Matz has been inconsistent. Vargas is going to be gone. Who's going to be a fifth starter, blah, blah, blah. I get that. But how I look at it is, is that if the Mets are going to somehow, some way, keep the top two and even if they're going to trade Wheeler starting pitching as we all know is very hard to find there's this kid in the minors right now is killing it in Anthony K he's a lefty supposedly doing very well down in Syracuse but still I, I just can't bank on him to all of a sudden come to the major leagues and then just be lights out but at the same time if you know Wheeler if you're not going to resign him and Wheeler's going to ask for you'd think he's going to ask for big time money and I'm not going to put Stocking a guy for let's say four years at eighty million, when he's going to be twelve and eleven with a three eight to four three ERA, and be as inconsistent as he's been. Listen, I'm not expecting him to go you know seventeen five, but which Zach Wheeler am I going to see? Are we going to see the second half or p- flashes of the second half of last year that we saw in him, or are we going to see the first half of what we saw this year? Now watch him go out and have a killer second half, whether it's here in New York or if he does get traded before the deadline. And then, God bless him, if that were to happen, we'll see what happens come free agency. But I would think that the Mets need pieces. The Mets need players back here. And I understand pitching is the name of the game, but they also need some defense, which we all know the defense is horrendous. The bullpen, we don't even need to discuss that. But as we wrap up the whole Met-Yankee segment and with the whole trade deadline, how I look at it is this. Other than, obviously, Alonzo... McNeil, DeGrom, and Syndergaard for the right deal, anybody else is fair game. I want Dom Smith to stay here. It'd be in a perfect world, I'd have Dom Smith at first and you'd move Pete Alonso to third. But chances are that's probably not going to happen. And if Dom Smith goes in a deal that brings back the right players, so be it. Whether it's a pitcher, relief pitcher, etc. Same for... Zach Wheeler, Vargas are small potatoes, Frazier's small potatoes, Todd Frazier that is. 
I don't know. Yeah, are you going to give up Ahmed Rosario on a deal? I know they have a shortstop in waiting, but he's still a couple years away. Conforto. Nimmo's been hurt, so he's not going to be of any value. Right, I'm not saying that, hey, trade Conforto, trade half the team. I'm not one of those Met fans that thinks that way. You know, just because a guy has an 0 for 30 week that, oh, you got to trade him, get him out of here. But it's going to be it's going to be interesting to see what Brody's going to do over the course of the next two weeks because pretty much what he's doing now is going to be a precursor to 2020. And it's not to say that whoever, whomever he brings back is going to automatically make pay dividends or has to have that impact result unless you're bringing back a Fernando Tatis Jr. if that were ever to be the case. But we all know, please, that's a pipe dream and a half. But you get my point. When the Mets made those trades a couple years ago when they traded Lucas Duda and Curtis Granderson and you know, they're getting 30th-ranked prospects, and it's, they, they got to go a little higher. And I get that Duda's not going to bring you back a cavalcade of prospects, but at the same time, I don't think for a Lucas Duda it's going to bring you back their 30th-ranked prospect. Can we get like the 10th? And I've said this before on the podcast. I've said, listen, start at one and go down. Let them laugh at you or maybe even hang up the phone. You can call them back and say, okay, how about anywhere between two and ten? And who knows? You may get a sucker out there. It happens in the NBA. Look at Billy King. And I understand the baseball GMs, they're more hip to this than maybe the NBA guys because it's weird. You don't see like the bad baseball trade anymore. I mean, you may not see like the great baseball trade. I understand, you know, people may look at it and say, what happened a few years ago when they Yankees traded Roldis Chapman to the Cubs for Gleyber Torres? And that was a rental. But Chapman, of course, was one of the top closers in the game. And then the Yankees re-signed him afterwards, and we all know the whole deal. But in the process, although he was crawling to the finish line, but Chapman was part of a World Series team, and the Cubs hadn't won in 108 years. So, of course, they paid the price, and giving up a guy who was going to be a perennial all-star for the rest of his career, if he remains healthy, but they gave up something in return. So if the Mets get anything like that with any of their players, whether they're named Noah Syndergaard or Zach Wheeler to a lesser degree, then they're going to do it. And as far as the wild card, we'll go through some of the baseball stuff here real quick. I know, understand you had a, uh, what's called the other night, which is a big story in Anaheim, a great story, with the Angels no-hitting the Mariners, a combined no-hitter, the first game back in Anaheim since the death of Tyler Skaggs. They wore all number 45 jerseys, and they combined for a no-hitter, which was unbelievable. And then to think the Rays almost had a combined perfect game yesterday. So talk about bookending the weekend with two pitching performances like that. But the Angels trying to recover and dig out of that, and that was an emotional setting uh, out in Anaheim. But the right now the divisions, the only division, like I said, worth talking about would be the AL, excuse me, the NL Central, because everything else is pretty much going to be, unless barring a catastrophe. I mean, look at the deficits that you have in baseball. In the AL East, the Rays are six back, but they eight in a loss. The Indians are six back. Or six and a half back with six and a loss. Oakland, although they're steam headed, you know, the steam rolling ahead to try to see if they could not only keep themselves in that wild card contention, but they may have their sights set on Houston as well. And I don't know what the schedule is down the stretch. I'll have to take a look at that. They're six games back. The Nationals, who have certainly made a push here, but still, they're seven back, although six and a loss from the Braves. And then the West, you can forget about it because the Dodgers are literally two touchdowns ahead, games ahead of the Rockies, Diamondbacks, etc. And you only have the situation that's going on in the Central with the Cubs, uh, 
and Milwaukee, and the Cubs actually had a good weekend, and the Brewers did not. But you know, come back next weekend, they'll be deadlocked even at the top of the division. So that's what you have there. But the wild card is going to be interesting in this regard. In the AL right now, you're looking at uh, take the top two teams, Tampa and Oakland. You have Cleveland, that's a half game back. Boston's two and a half back. Texas, and even the Angels. And the Angels have played well. Give them credit. They're five back. What are they going to do to... Now, we talked about the Red Sox already, but what are the Angels going to do? Are they going to go out there and be buyers? Considering they want to get to the postseason, they have the game's best player who hasn't stiffed the postseason since 2014, so you would think they'll make a push of some sort, right? Same with the Rangers. As they've been overachieving the whole year, you think they're going to go out and make a move? You would only hope. And then in the National League, forget about it. You talk about a logjam. When you look at the wild card standings, but this is how deceiving it is. If you were just to take out the records, okay? Now take out Washington and Philly. Now Milwaukee's a half game back, followed by St. Louis a game back. Arizona a game and a half. When you look at all the teams that are in the wild card mix, forget about the Marlins, they're 13 back. And if you look and you see NYM and you see six games back, you're thinking, wait a minute, Mets are six games back of a wild card? So before you start having any type of visions, Met fans, of wild card contention dancing in your heads, I'm going to shoot it down right now by saying, until you get to 500, and right now you're nine games away from 500, and you still have six games to be played here on the road, which you have, the Mets have not played well on the road this year. And they're going to Minnesota. It's going to be a tough task. And San Francisco, although they're a bad team, but and the Mets have actually played well in San Francisco over the years. So who knows? But again, I, I I can't trust the Mets as far as I can throw them. But even though they're six games behind the second wild card spot, there is no way on God's green earth you could think that the Mets are in this race. Cannot. I don't care. Well, I don't care what you think. Say, if someone were to sit across from me and give me and the most optimistic Mets fan would give me the remedy or the equate whatever you want to call it to figure out how the Mets could get into the postseason, uh-uh. Get to 500 first, and we'll talk at that point. Because the Mets have to leapfrog a million teams to get to that number two season. It's not like they're six games back, but they're two teams ahead of them. So that's what you have with the baseball and the wild card, and it's good because now we can focus in on that. I understand that when you get to this time of year, there's nothing else going on in sports. You know, the NBA, which we'll get to in a little bit, is now starting to quiet down a little, even after the trade that took place last week. NHL has also been quiet, although there's some free agents still left. Yeah, Wimbledon just finished. I understand you have the Open coming this week if you're a die-in-the-wool golf fan or the casual golf fan. But that's it. I mean, that this is all you have. So a lot of the attention, a lot of the focus was certainly, it's, and it has been on baseball here the last couple of weeks, especially after the NBA Finals and the draft, and et cetera. But now... We could turn our attention to that, and we'll see how these trades unfold here over the course of the next 16 days before the deadline. And remember, one deadline, no waiver deadline afterwards until August 31st, so this is it. Teams are going to try to either retool or reload here over the course of the next two and a half weeks, and we'll see how that all shakes down as uh, we start to kick off the sprint to July 31st and the trade deadline at 4 p.m. All right, now to get my thoughts on this trade that took place on Thursday between the Rockets and Oklahoma City Thunder. And the Rockets, give them credit. They knew they had to make a change. There were a lot of rumblings about the relationship between Chris Paul and James Harden. 
especially toward the latter half of the season and into the postseason. And now that the Rockets trying to get themselves back into the championship mix, considering what has taken place in Golden State, considering what has taken place in L.A. with the Clippers and Lakers, and with Denver, Portland, and Utah relatively in the mix, despite not making any significant upgrades as far as free agents or trades at this moment. Well, Utah did with Mike Conley. I take that back. But again, a lot of people aren't going to wake up today and think that Utah is going to be one of the favorites in the West to be a representative in the NBA final. But with the Rockets now trading for Russell Westbrook here, it's huge from this regard. You have a player who is four years younger than Chris Paul. We know the back of his basketball card. We know what he's done. And from that standpoint, it's a significant upgrade defensively as well because Chris Paul, long in the tooth, we understand his best days are behind him. But when the Thunder made this trade and knowing that they're getting more draft picks back and what they've done this offseason is unbelievable. And luckily for them that they were able to make these type of deals to acquire the draft picks that they have. I believe they have eight draft picks between now and 2026. I get a lot of people are going to look at that as the blueprint or the recipe, but again, you have to have the assets. And they certainly did in the wake of the Kawhi Leonard trade, in the wake of this trade, and now they can look ahead to the future and say, all right, this is what we have. We understand even with Chris Paul on their team right now, they could probably see if they can make a push, not for an NBA final, but at least to be competitive. But I would think that Paul, Oklahoma City is not going to be his last destination. I'm going to get to that in a second. As far as the dynamic of Russ in Houston, I understand a lot of people are going to look back at the days of James Harden in Oklahoma City, but you got to remember people. A, that was seven, eight years ago. B, James Harden was coming off the bench. And was certainly not the player that he was anywhere near what he is today. And granted that Harden had given the Daryl Morey, the GM of the Rockets, his blessing, the thumbs up. Hey, bring him on. That's all good. Whatever. I'm sure part of it was relief he doesn't have to deal with Chris Paul anymore. But remember, Russell Westbrook is a, I'm going to say it just like this. He's a son of a bitch. And what I mean by that, he is a guy that, as we all know, plays with one speed. It's 100 miles an hour or nothing. But at the same time, that's his attitude. And he's a guy who's relentless. He's Kobe-esque as far as his pursuit on the basketball court in reference to playing hard, of course, wanting to win. Is that always the end result as far as wanting to win in the sense of playoff series? No, not since Kevin Durant has left. But you wonder if that alpha male in Westbrook and the alpha male that James Harden has become especially in his time as a rocket can that actually come to a boil at some point where not to say not going to get along and not to say but there could be some tough waters to tread throughout the course of a season or playoff series or whatever it may be I see that happening more than them being lovey-dovey and the honeymoon's going to be for the next four years Because these are two ball-dominant players. These are two of the highest usage rate players in the league. Actually, they're one and two. And I understand Westbrook, he gets a lot of assists, and so does Harden for that matter. But again, you wonder, 
with some of these numbers with Westbrook. If he's just I, – I, I'm not trying to knock him. Westbrook, he's the type of guy where his motor is high and he is passionate and he's one of the freakish athletes we've seen in this league. For him to be 6'3", to jump out of the gym and have a motor that's – his horsepower is 1,000. But the thing is, this is not his team. It's not going to be his team. He was the man in Oklahoma City even when Durant was there. People may say that was Durant's team, but Westbrook wasn't far behind. But now he's coming into a situation where that is the Beards team. And Westbrook's got to fit in. And how is he going to be able to fit in? It's going to be enormous. And yeah, in the beginning, I'm sure it's going to be lovey-dovey. It's going to be great. Are we reunited? But again, Harden was not that same guy back in 2011, 2012 that he is now. And I think at some point, it's going to rear its ugly head where James is going to say, hey, dude, I'm running the show here. This is my team. And Westbrook says, oh, you thought? That's something to watch out for. I'm sorry. People want to have this marriage to think it's going to be great and, oh, they're going to be reunited and it's going to be fantastic and wonderful and so on and so forth. I put pump the brakes on that. And yes, training camp, the first part of the season, but there's going to come a crunch time when, let's say, Houston is at playing in L.A. against the Clippers or Lakers and it's crunch time. Who's getting that ball? Yeah, Westbrook may be like, all right, yeah, I'll give it to James this time, but guess what? I want mine too. And Mike D'Antoni, who as if you listen to this podcast, I'm not a big fan of, and I don't trust him in a big spot. Boy, he's gonna really, he's gonna really have to juggle here. And granted, he's going into his last year of his deal, so he didn't re up. So who knows? I mean, this is gonna be it for him either way, unless he wins a title. But you also got to throw in that factor and how he's going to be part of this, and coaching both of these guys. So, before anybody wants to get crazy and think that this is going to be a rise to the top, or people are going to already anoint Houston as a quote-unquote sleeper team, which they shouldn't, or even a team that, yeah, is going to come out of the West, which I, I'm sure a lot of people aren't. They're going to look at either one of the L.A. teams, for starters. But I don't, I don't know about this reunion part two. I don't think it's going to be all that's cracked up to be. Are they going to have their moments? Absolutely. Is it going to be exciting? Absolutely. Without question. But is it going to be the love fest that it was back in the OKC days? Don't hold your breath. And the NBA is going to quiet down here. And as far as Chris Paul is concerned, you would think that even with three years and $140 million, what is he owed? 120 I think, over the next three years. The reason why the Westbrook contract works, and he's getting paid King's ransom as it is, but he's younger, and although he's making more money in an extra year, but Paul, his best days are behind him. We understand he's going to have his moments, he's going to have his flashes, etc., but Chris Paul, as far as him being an all-NBA player, uh uh-uh, those days are gone. And you'd only hope, is he going to be the soldier and stick it out at OKC, or is he going to try to... As we talked about last week on the podcast, the way the player development, the how they're able to broker these deals, the player empowerment, I should say, how they're able to request these trades or have a demand to say, uh-uh, I want out of here. You just have to make it work, whatever it may be. He may do that, but where is he going to go? 
People think that, oh, it's just simple. Oklahoma City is going to buy him out and he's going to sign with the Lakers. Oh, yeah? That simple. All right, so imagine if that were to happen, which it can't, because I don't know if Houston, if they have used their amnesty or not off the top of my head, and you think they're just going to just look at Chris Paul and say, Oklahoma City, they're going to say, all right, well, yeah, we'll pay you $120 million over the next few years. It's going to go against our cap. We'll buy you out, and then you could sign on with any other team. No, they're not doing that. And on top of that, he's not going to go to the Lakers as everybody would want to predict or think because the Lakers signed Rajon Rondo for two years, and you think Rondo's going to take a backseat to Chris Paul? Now, for the career, everybody's going to take Chris Paul's career over Rajon Rondo, but everybody knows the type of player Rondo is. And if there's one thing that Rondo could brag about to Chris Paul, he may not have the All-NBAs, he may not have the multiple All-Stars. I believe he's a four-time All-Star, but my point is that Paul's been probably, what, eight-time All-Star, made more money than Rondo, has been an All-NBA player, I'm sure. I can't even tell you how many times more so than Rondo. Rondo's going to be like, guess what? I got the brass ring, Jack. I won a championship. What have you done in your career? You haven't even made it to an NBA final. And Rondo's been in two of them. So you know if there's going to be a, an ego fight or there's going to be, I kind of hate to say it this way, but uh, there's going to be a, a measurement of sorts at the table, if you know what I mean, when it comes to uh, manhood, Rondo's going to say, hey, yeah, you may have all the awards, but guess what? Not only am I capable, but I got some championship appearances to back me up as well. What do you got, my man? I know Miami's going to be in the mix. You would think maybe the Pistons. Who knows? I think Paul goes where he's going to go. I couldn't even tell you. Maybe Miami to play with Jimmy Butler, but he's not going to go anywhere near a title if he plays there. You can forget about going to Milwaukee or any of these other teams. So, Paul, he's, he's in a tough spot. I'm sure he wants that elusive ring. I'm sure he wants to be certified. He knows he's a an all-time point guard. And he, he's going to be a Hall of Famer one day. And what he's missing is that ring. And right now, he's that much more further in a loaded West than he was four or five days ago. And like I said before, the NBA will start to uh, tone down a little bit here, you would think, unless Paul gets traded or you have some unforeseen trade that's going to pop up here over the course of the next month and a half or so. Because remember, two years ago, the Kyrie trade was late August. So you certainly uh, may be surprised if anything does come about here in the weeks and months to come. But you would think after this, it's certainly going to quiet down and you won't hear much about the association uh, until training camp. Quickly with the NHL, there are a few free agents that are out there. A lot of them of uh, of the veteran ilk. Whether you're Patrick Marlowe, Joe Thornton, there's two ex-teammates right there from San Jose. A lot of people think Thornton's going to go back to San Jose. They can't see him in any other uniform. Justin Williams, who's been on a million teams, but he's a Game 7 dynamo in these playoff series. Lastly, with Carolina. Pat Maroon, who just came off winning a cup. And Jake Gardner, who's a defenseman there, formerly the Toronto. So there are some names that are out there for some teams. Where they go, where they end up, we'll see. I know a lot of the players, they probably won't even, a lot of teams won't touch a Marlowe or Thornton. Not necessarily maybe for money issues, but just because of the age. As Despite the fact all the experience, but just wanting to not really pay that much, but also want to go younger. So the NHL, I'm sure, will 
Also, be quiet with the NBA here over the course of the next couple of months as training camp begins there in September. And lastly, a couple of things before we say goodbye. The Wimbledon final. And let's go to the Serena and Simona Halep, who won her first, I believe her first Grand Slam. First Wimbledon for sure. And Simona, who knocked out Coco Goff, who was the story of Wimbledon up until last Monday. And Serena gets all the way to the final, but she ends up losing. I know there were some comments there about Serena fighting for equality. She says, I want to fight until my grave. I believe that was from comments made by Billie Jean King, which I didn't really go in depth to try to find what Billie Jean King said. We all know Billie Jean King's a pioneer. One of the all-time great tennis players, and obviously for everything that she stood for, etc. Remember the old battle of the sexes? They made a movie out of it later on. With uh, Bobby Riggs saying that, ah, you know, she can't beat a guy. And that happened in the Astrodome back in the early 70s. If you haven't seen the movie, I forgot who was even in it. What, Emma Stone and uh, who was the person that played Bobby Riggs? Was it Steve Carell? I don't even know. But anyway, so she had made some comments about equality. That was after the match. But uh, Serena, who I believe would have, that would have been number 24 for her all time, certainly fell short there with Simona Alep. And then what could you say about the Wimbledon final yesterday? Not only was it the first of any of the four Grand Slams that made it to a fifth set tiebreaker, but it just dragged on forever. It was 13-12, the final set, 7-3, Nadal, us, Nadal, Novak. I had Novak and Nadal in the same uh, brain space. Djokovic winning another Wimbledon, his 16th major. And I got news for you. When you look at the rankings here, you have, as far as the Grand Slams are concerned, Federer is at top at the top with 20, Nadal with 18, and Djokovic now has 16. When you look at these top three, and these have been the dominant three of this era, more so than any era in tennis. I mean, how can you even look back over this last, what, 12-year stretch to have three tennis players win as many majors as they've had? And this is going back to 2003. I believe that was the first of Federer's Grand Slams. So from 2003 to 2019, they have combined an outrageous number, 54 Grand Slam wins. Which A, you're not going to see ever moving forward. And I talked about the the state of men's tennis as it is to begin with with these three guys. I mean, what's going to happen if these guys are gone? And mind you what, Federer's 37. Nadal, I think, is 35 and... Djokovic is 32. So these guys are certainly going to start to, as dominant as they still are, they're not going to be on their peak performance forever. So Djokovic, who arguably could probably, when you look at these three, people are going to say the Grand Slams count, so they're going to pick Federer one of all time and then Nadal two. Now, the one thing I think that hurts Nadal in the top three, because I would think you could look at Djokovic, Djokovic and Federer. Now, Federer will probably have to be number one but a lot of people may look at Djokovic as being the second best in this era only because out of the 18 Grand Slams that Nadal's won, 12 of them have been at the French Open. And I believe he's won two at the Australian. No, one at the Australian, two Wimbledon, and three U.S. Open. So they haven't been as spread out as Federer or Djokovic. Now, I don't have the numbers, but I easily off the top of my head, I knew that Nadal had 12. 
So you kind of wonder where the other four come from. And with the way Djokovic has played, and he's younger, and his story is still yet to be finished, you wonder if at the end of the day, even if he ends up at 20, could he be the greatest men's player, men's tennis player of all time? And Djokovic has certainly been dominant. He's a guy that doesn't, he's not slowing down. Nadal, as we've seen over the years, he's had his issues with knee injuries and he has to pull out of some of these tournaments. Federer is like fine wine, he's aging gracefully, but at the same time, Djokovic, he's just, he's a, a bull in a china shop, man. That guy is, his name is the Joker, but he is no joke. And as far as all time, I mean, how can you even argue? I mean, people are going to look at Rod Laver. They're going to go back as far as Stan Smith. And we get the Pete Sampras's of the world and Jimmy Connors, John McEnroe. Other play- I mean, there's a million tennis players we could go through. But these three right here are probably the best. Those guys could play those, you know, the McEnroe's and the Connors and all those guys of years past. And we understand trying to compare pair against errors and things of that nature are useless, but let's face it. These three guys are as dominant as we'll ever see, and at the same time, you could probably rank them one, two, and three, however you may be. I'm sure Federer would be first, but Djokovic, I, I got much respect for him, man. And I, I like Nadal. Nadal's been my guy for years. I just love his passion, his fire, but Djokovic, I'm sure if you ask the dine-the-wool tennis fan or even the Former tennis player, if, you, if I sat across John McEnroe and said, forget about head-to-head, forget about when you look at just overall temperament, talent, everything. If you were to say that Novak Djokovic is number one overall, do you have an argument? And I'm sure some people say, yeah, you do. So I just found that fascinating the way he performed throughout this tournament. And again, I understand he doesn't get the semifinal matchup that you saw with Federer and Nadal. I don't want to say he has an easier trajectory towards winning a Grand Slam title, but when you're number one and you don't have to worry about having to face one of those two guys in the semis, hey, those are the breaks. And that's when Nadal bitched and moaned about prior to the start of the Wimbledon. And look, now chances are he probably wouldn't have beaten Djokovic, if you ask me. Because Djokovic, he's, again, a guy's... He's on top of his game, he's dominant, and he won another title despite the fact that he still remains two behind Nadal and four behind Federer overall for all time. And then lastly, we have the Open Championship, which kicks off on Thursday, the final Grand Slam tournament for golf. Now, the one thing is is that the location, which changes from year to year, I know St. Andrews is one of the backdrops that we've Come to familiar to see. I believe it's in uh, the Open this year is being played at the Royal Portrose Golf Club. Now, obviously, I don't know much about that course. I know it's only been played, I think it's the second time in 50-some-odd years that the British Open is going to be played there. And I think at the top of the show, I said it was going to be in the UK. When you think of the British, you think it's going to be played in the UK, but actually it's going to be, I believe it's in Northern Ireland from what I saw. So not being familiar with the course... For so many years, when you watch the British Open, you see St. Andrews and you see when it's being played in those conditions, especially when it's windy and at times it's wet. You see the golfers with the windbreakers on or even turtlenecks for that matter. So we don't know what the conditions are going to be like. You figure 
the usual suspects are going to be there, whether it's Brooks Kepka, who's just been on a roll this year. A lot of people like Rory McIlroy, and why not, although he hasn't performed, as far as the majors are concerned, him being at the top of the leaderboard there for any sustainable time frame here in 2019. Well, you're looking at Dustin Johnson. I know Phil Mickelson, supposedly he fasted over the last 15 days. He feels that maybe some of the weight coming off will be a benefit to him because he, to his own admission, he said he's been poor and played poorly this year on the tour, and he figures that, hey, if this is going to be my last chance at winning a title for this year, let me do something drastic or do it, which is fine. This is great. And I hope it works for him. I'm not a Mickelson fan, but whenever you have him in the mix there at the top of the leaderboard, especially when you get to that final day, that's what's going to bring eyeballs to the sets. You know, who knows about Tiger? Obviously, that Tiger wave from the Masters to today has certainly quieted and died down. But you would think Kepka's going to be in the mix. McElroy, who's going to be the other guy that's going to surface and take a stand here? I'll certainly pay attention to see what's going to happen. This is the last major golf tournament, so I'll definitely keep an eye on it, see how it goes, especially with the weather, that being an element, uh, the wind, whatever it may be. Uh, that's always been a story when it comes to uh, these British Opens over the years, as I mentioned before. So I'll be uh, sure to keep full attention and keep my eye on uh, what's going to take place here as we close out the 2019 major golf tournaments uh, where it will be played out there in uh, Northern Ireland. And now to wrap up, my hero in zero of the week, I didn't have a hero until I saw this morning, and not to say that this guy was a hero by any stretch of imagination, but uh, hearing this news was very startling, and I kind of hate to, seems like a lot of these heroes are people that have uh, certainly passed, but Pernell Whitaker was a fighter dating back to the 80s and into the 90s, the late 90s, who was a part of some great fights and a couple of big controversial ones at that. The first one being in 1993 against Julio Cesar Chavez, where if you watch that fight, and I remember it to this day, he had led to me eight foreign rounds. Chavez, remember, he was an unbeatable fighter at that time. A lot of people looked at Chavez as the guy that who's going to knock him off as far as his mantra uh, being a uh, middleweight. And that night, Please, it was, was as bad as any for boxing that's ever had. Sports Illustrated even had the headline robbed where Pernell Whitaker was just dominant. And I understand that Whitaker is a guy, he's m- much more known for his defense, not a power puncher by any stretch of imagination. For those who didn't see Pernell Whitaker, just think of Floyd Mayweather. That would be the best comparison. And I thought Pernell Whitaker, out of any, any fighter in the history of boxing, was the best defensive fighter of all time until Floyd Mayweather. You got to give it to Floyd. Floyd is top notch. Obviously, he's never lost, and I've had my issues with Floyd as far as the fight is concerned over the years, but that goes without saying, or that's beyond the point at this moment. But Sweet P. Whitaker, which he's also known as, if you ever, I'm sure all of his fights are on YouTube, definitely watch that. He certainly was just so swift in the way he defended fights. People missed, uh, almost embarrassed fighters. But to a much lesser degree than when Mayweather, we all know Mayweather is about flash, dash, persona, 
We, we know how Mayweather is. And Sweet Pea was the opposite of that. Then in 97 when he fought De La Hoya, I thought that was a close fight. I thought De La Hoya won, but a lot of the judges, they saw a different fight than what I did. It wasn't even close on the scorecards, which was a joke. And I couldn't stand De La Hoya as a fighter. So that was the other controversy later on. Although a lot of people, probably the De La Hoya hater, will probably look at, oh, Whitaker won. It was close. And I believe, I probably had it 7-5 De La Hoya, but it could have gone either way. But yeah, they had it like 116-110. It was just ridiculous. And then later on, he fought Felix Trinidad, which was actually his penultimate fight because he had one last fight against this other guy. I don't even remember who he was. And then you never heard from him again. And then he trained fighters and... But he pretty much laid low in the boxing scene. He wasn't that guy that was all about me, sticking out my chest, wasn't mugging for the cameras, none of that. He was very low-key, very mild-mannered type of guy, certainly a student of the game. Well, word came out that he actually had died as he was hit by a car in Virginia Beach, suffered some injuries, and succumbed to those injuries. And at 55 years old, boxing loses another Treasure, just a shame because, again, this is a guy that you have not seen in the spotlight since his fighting days. And, again, that's going back almost 20 years. And despite the fact that he did train fighters, but he certainly did not put himself out there the way he should. And he had a phenomenal career. I believe he ended 44-1, and known as one of the great defensive boxers of all time. And it was just a shame to read that this morning. So I'm putting my uh, hero to a one Pernell Sweepy Whitaker. So my thoughts to you, my man. May you rest in peace and to... Those out there who, family, friends, acquaintances, whatever it may be, my thoughts and prayers are with you guys. And then my zero of the week are those damn operators of the scoreboard at Progressive Field, formerly Jacobs Field, at the All-Star Game. Damn them for putting up Jacob DeGrom's face when Jeff McNeil came into the game or to at bat, which is an embarrassment. You think they had enough time to align all of the technical aspects of the faces and the names, and they didn't even screw them up. They also screwed up a couple of guys on the Colorado Rockies putting different pictures, and uh, how can you do that? And McNeil was upset, and good for him. I understand a lot of people may look at it and say, ah, what's the big deal? It's an all-star game. Who cares? But a guy like Jeff McNeil, who is, let's face it, been an underdog pretty much throughout, people could say, well, well, look what he's done, and so on and so forth. But again, he's 27 years old. It's not like this guy was a can't-miss prospect. And here he is. The one shining moment of his early early on in his career, and who knows if he's going to get back. You know, he can't guarantee he's going to be a multiple all-star player or a perennial all-star player. But here he is, his first ever all-star game, and he's going up to the plate, and he looks up in the right field or left field, wherever the scoreboard is in left field, and what does he see? He sees Jacob DeGrom's picture next to his name. I mean, that's an embarrassment. Come on, guys. I mean, not only did you screw that up for one of our guys, but for the Colorado Rockies, and there was also some other technical issues that they had so shame on them boo on them they're the, they're the zeros of the week whoever those guys are and uh yeah it's just a flat-out embarrassment so sorry jeff mcneil hopefully you'll go back next year and that they get your face right attached to your name when you're a two-time all-star all right so that will conclude the podcast for this week people as i say each and every week i independently produce write edit and host this podcast which i love to do I certainly look forward to these Mondays to recap everything that's happening in the world of sports and hopefully sprinkle in another one toward the end of the week if I get a guest to come on. But in order for me to get those guests, and I understand it may seem like, huh, what are you talking about, Jay Reels? But your participation when it comes to subscribing to this podcast, when it comes to leaving a review, posting a rating, and you could do so at any of those platforms. 
And it's Google, Apple, Stitcher, Spreaker, Spotify, Luminary. Those are more than a handful. And I'm sure there are others. CastBox is another one. There's quite a few that are out there. When you do that, when you just leave a rating, post a review, all that, not only does it increase the visibility of this podcast with all the other sports podcasts that are out there, but it's going to generate some interest with some people outside of that where I could possibly get some guests where they say, hey, the J-Rose podcast is trending. It's going up. It's this. It's that. So with your help, and I greatly appreciate that ahead of time, that's what it's going to do. It's going to more so increase the visibility of this podcast, which would then generate having more guests and having former athletes, current athletes, if possible, sports writers, broadcasters, authors, whatever it may be, as I uh, deliver not only all the sports news, but also the sports stories from those who have played in the game, followed the game, broadcasted the game, etc. So I implore you to do that, people. I would uh, be forever indebted to you. And, of course, if you want to drop a line, whether it's an email at the Podcast at gmail.com or any of my social media sites on Instagram, which I'm mostly on, jreels, J-A-Y-R-E-E-L-Z, jreels, the number one on Twitter, just the one, and then the jreels podcast on my Facebook fan page. Please send me a question, comment, criticism, praise, whatever it may be, uh, any of my DMs, whatever, as I will certainly follow up and write back to you just so I could keep you abreast of what's happening, of everything that's going on in the diamond, the ice, the gridiron, hardwood, golf course, racetrack, tennis court, you name it. From my lips to your ears, from my heart to your soul, from where I am to wherever you are, the J Reels podcast always comes correct, direct, and in full effect. From the South Bronx, the South Beach, the South Central, the South Pacific, and all points beyond, peace, love, and God bless everybody. And until next time on the J Reels podcast, on the flip, baby. <laughs>